welcome to this interview uh, with the authors of the latest chapter in virtual vascular, the chapter on acute deep vein thrombosis and pulmonary embolism. So I'm happy to greet the authors today, Professor Stavros Kakos, Professor Andy Nikolaides, and Professor Rupert Bowersacks. We are also together with Jonathan Ernsho, who is the editor of Virtual Vascular, and Peter Zlatanevich, who will be moderating the session. Thank you, Medina. So it's, glad, it's really glad to have you all for this discussion. I will uh, start first by asking Professor Nikolaides. So during your long career as a vascular surgeon, in your opinion, what are the three most important advances in the treatment of acute deep venous thrombosis? I can think of three very important stages. And looking back, I think the first was the introduction of the therapeutic low molecular weight heparin, which enabled us to discharge somebody home, having made the diagnosis with injections of low molecular weight heparin. And we stopped having to use the drip that kept the patients in hospital. And I think a few years later, we realized that was a very good treatment. And we now know because you get better lysis of the thrombi. In the days of warfarin, two out of 10 uh, thrombosis would lysis. Right now, with uh, any drug that works on the antitenae, you get eight out of 10 lysing. That was the first. The second one I can think of was the introduction of the direct oral anticoagulants, which you could do exactly the same and with a drug such as apixaban, you could start straight away and send them home again. That was a very, very useful armamentarium we now have. And the third one I can think of is related to the extended prophylaxis, particularly the prevention of recurrence. As you all know, in the days of warfarin, we were scared if we prolonged warfarin treatment after a year or two years, the risk of bleeding outweighed the benefit of prevention of recurrence, so we kept it short. But now we can give a low dose, say apixaban, and we can carry on with extended prophylaxis, having identified the patients at increased risk for recurrence. And the way we do the identification of patients at risk of recurrence is either we use the Vienna normogram, with the dimer, or we use the residual thrombosis, and so on. And there you are. Thank you, Professor Nicolaides. That was really interesting to hear. And the second question goes to Professor Kakos. So you've recently been responsible for writing a guideline for the management of the venous thrombosis for the ESVS. <laughs> Where can it be found? Who should read it? And how do you think it will help clinicians in the future? Regarding the first arm of your question, this guideline can be found, it's freely available, downloadable on the webpage of the European Journal of Vascular and Endovascular Surgery. Regarding the second arm of the question, who should read it? The answer is that all physicians involved in the diagnosis, but more importantly, on the treatment of deep vein thrombosis should be reading it. These physicians include emergency room physicians, vascular surgeons, hematologists, internal medicine doctors. Regarding your third question on how will it change the practice, our current practice, 
is that these guidelines will harmonize the treatment, the management of deep vein thrombosis and decrease the disparities that are seen across Europe and also across the globe, based not only on what we think as physicians, as writers of this guideline, but also based on the results of recent RCTs, randomized control trials, meta-analysis, and current thinking of people who are involved in the management of deep vein thrombosis for decades. Thank you, Professor Kakos. This the last remark was very interesting and very important to hear. So the next question goes to Professor Bawazaks. Uh, what do you think uh, were the big advances in anticoagulation for the DVT over the past decade? I think we've seen large advances in the anticoagulation for DVT over the last decade. And uh, one of the biggest advances surely was the introduction of the direct oral anticoagulants, the DOACs, mainly also for the principal treatment phase. The principal treatment phase in the ESVS guideline is the treatment phase that everybody, every patient should receive at least three months. And the DOACs have shown less major bleeding compared to vitamin K antagonists, and most importantly, less intracranial hemorrhages which we fear, of course. And if you do all efforts for vitamin K antagonist treatment to improve the INR range, uh, you will be more effective, but you will never get the bleeding risk lower, even in those patients who do self-control. So that's a big advantage of the DOEX uh, that they have less major bleeding. Another big step forward was that we are now able to stratify the risk for recurrence in DVT patients. We know that unprovoked DVT or patients with minor risk factors have a substantial risk of recurrence. And we now have the option to use the DOEX in a prophylactic dose after six months, for example, with a very low bleeding risk and high efficacy. So the bleeding risk is not different from placebo or aspirin. So that's a very new and very good option for many patients. Thank you, Professor Bauer-Zaks. And now I would like to ask Professor Kakos one provocative question. So if you or your family member had a iliofemoral DVT, would you recommend thrombolysis? And if yes, please explain why. For many years, surgical thrombectomy has been used to treat patients with a limb that is at risk of venous gangrene. And this has been shown to be effective. There have been also trials, small trials with surgical thrombectomy, but these were not powered to demonstrate that the long-term efficacy of this intervention, thrombectomy, is effective in reducing the frequency of the post-thrombotic syndrome. So, Many years ago, catheter-directed thrombectomy or thrombolysis was introduced as a minimally invasive technique to eliminate the thrombus and hopefully reduce the incidence of the post-thrombotic syndrome in the long term. A meta-analysis that we performed as part of these guidelines clearly demonstrated that by 
performing thrombectomy or thrombolysis compared to no intervention, there is a significant reduction in the incidence of the severe post-thrombotic syndrome, which includes the development of ulcers. There is no indication for indiscriminate use of this method because there is a small risk of bleeding. So to improve efficacy and also safety of this method, current guidelines suggest that it should be used in young patients with a very small risk of bleeding, but also in patients with recent thrombosis, less than two weeks old, and also in patients who did not have a recurrent DVT because in those circumstances, it's much more difficult to achieve a good effect. So the answer to your question would be yes, provided that particular indications are present, but there are no contraindications. And an additional remark is that there should be adequate local experience. So I would rather have to find an experienced interventional radiologist or vascular surgeon performing this technique. Thank you, Professor Kakos. That was not an easy question to answer. And another <laughs> provocative also question goes to Professor Bawazaks. If you or a family member had a submassive pulmonary embolism, would you want thrombolysis and why? Ah, that's a, that's a good question. Uh, first of all, if a family member or myself would be would have some, you know, acute disease, I always prefer evidence-based medicine. I always prefer the standard treatment. And I would not rather have an exception for a family member or myself. If it was a life-threatening massive pulmonary embolism, it would be easy because then you would do anything as fast as possible to restore uh, the circulation. With a submassive pulmonary embolism, it's a little bit more difficult. Fortunately, we have some evidence. We have evidence from the PATHO trial, for example, where patients were enrolled with submassive pulmonary embolism with right ventricular strain, with troponin elevated, and they were randomized to fibrinolysis with tenecteplase or placebo on top of anticoagulation. And the outcome was quite striking. Uh, the outcome was that death or decompensation occurred in more than 5% in the placebo group, and it was reduced by 50% with the fibrinolysis. Death was reduced a little bit from 1.8% to 1.2%, but there was a price to pay. The major bleeding increased from 2.4% to more than 11% with fibrinolysis, and especially the hemorrhagic stroke was tenfold with the fibrinolysis. So it is effective, but it has side effects of bleeding. Now, to answer your difficult question, what would I do? I think in the beginning, I would not automatically go to fibrinolysis. I would rather have the patient monitored closely on an intermediate care unit, intensive, intensive care unit, and see if there is deterioration. And if that occurs, of course, over the next 12 or 48 hours, I would go for fibrinolysis. If the patient stabilizes, which happens quite often, then I would just stay with anticoagulation. So a difficult question, long answer here. 
Thank you, Professor Bauzak. It's really a pleasure to hear you. And finally, I would like to ask uh, again, Professor Nikolaidis, uh, in your opinion, what are the areas in thrombosis research uh, that need further research during the decade? Um, there are two areas I can think of that I'm going to mention. The first one is the place of catheter-directed thrombolysis and the problem of assessing progression of the post-thrombotic syndrome. And this is a very debatable subject right now because of the results of the recent studies we've had. And what really worries many of us is whether we have waited long enough for the post-thrombotic syndrome to develop because the publications of the randomized control studies were initially one year, then two years. But what we know, it takes five years to get the post-thrombotic syndrome, so we have to wait. And the other one are the measurements of the venous clinical severity score and the Villalta scale, the right ones for making these measurements. So I would like to see what will happen in the next two or three years with the follow-up of the patients. That's the first area. The second area I would like to mention that we need more research is the area of etiology of DVT and prevention. And let me explain. So far, we're very good at treating coagulopathy. We have very good anticoagulants, as we've heard earlier on. For venous stasis, when somebody is paralyzed or in the intensive care of ventilator, we have mechanical methods, intermittent pneumatic compression, which is highly recommended in the guidelines. As far as the endothelium is concerned, being the etiology, the, the third item in Verco's trial, we, we have the problem that we're not very good at preventing endothelial damage. And these thoughts I'm giving you now have been stimulated by the recent reports with DVT in COVID patients. And we have the recent publication of a randomized control trial that showed that in patients in intensive care on ventilation with COVID-19, low molecular weight heparin was ineffective. Full doses therapeutic heparin was ineffective. It was effective in people who are not on ventilators, of course. And it dawned on me, people on the ventilator have venous stasis because they're paralyzed and they have positive pressure ventilation and the stagnation of blood in the veins is there. But nobody has yet done a trial to combine low molecular weight heparin with intermittent pneumatic compression in people with COVID in intensive care. And then we have learned that with COVID, the endothelium of the veins is destroyed, the endothelium of the arteries is destroyed, and you get arterial thrombosis, you get venous thrombosis, and 30% of the patients in intensive care die from pulmonary embolism. So we have recently, a week ago, or actually a few days ago, we had the publication of the paper on sulodexide given to patients with COVID-19. Randomized controlled trial, multi-center, and what has transpired, these were patients with early COVID. They haven't gone to intensive care, but it showed that the people who were on the real drug were prevented from going getting worse and ending up in intensive care. So what I say is this, people with COVID-19 and they're in the intensive care, they have coagulopathy, they have venous stasis, and they have endothelial damage. And we need to treat both, all three actually, with anticoagulation, 
uh, low molecular weight heparin, prophylactic, intermediate pneumatic compression, and sulodexide. And I would like to see a randomized control trial comparing three with the standard method, which, is that which doesn't work. And that's, I think, summarizes what I wanted to say. Thank you, Professor Nicolaides. That was a uh, great final wrap-up answer. So thank you all for accepting our invitation to be part of this discussion. It was a, a really a great pleasure and honor to have you all with us. And it will be sure available adjunct to the brand new published chapter on this virtual vascular on acute deep venous thrombosis and pulmonary embolism. On behalf of the editors of Virtual Vascular, we're very grateful that you were able to contribute such a great chapter for us. And uh, we look forward to, uh, to many other chapters to complete our Virtual Vascular textbook. Gentlemen, thank okay. you very much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you. 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 Bye-bye. Thank you.